Welcome to the Exposure Ninja podcast, here to help you grow your business. My name's Tim Cameron Kitchen, best-selling digital marketing author and head ninja at Exposure Ninja. Welcome to the dojo. Okay, so starting in episode one, we're going to be going through some plans for starting a new business. Um, there's a lot to do, obviously, starting a new business, marketing, getting customers, loads of different marketing channels. So yeah, let's start by discussing where would you put your time and energy if you're starting out a new business, Tim? Yeah, good question. There are so many channels. And for somebody who's maybe just setting up their website or thinking about setting up their website, it can be pretty daunting. There are dozens of different channels that they can be using and then dozens of different ways that they can use each of those channels. Their kind of marketing overwhelm is is a pretty common thing. So I think the first thing to do is to accept that you won't be able to do everything straight away. And even if you could, it's not generally a good idea. I was talking a couple of weeks ago to a business who had just received a huge amount of investment. So they're sitting on this big cash pot and their question is, how can we spend this to make ourselves appear everywhere all at once? They're selling a proven product, but they have a new angle on it. That sort of approach, I've really had to kind of pull them back from because if you're selling something which is, is untested in any way, so they're selling a proven product, but to a new market, so it's essentially untested, then what they don't want to do is burn through all of their cash trying to sell this thing only to find out six months down the line that we're not really getting a good response from this. So the first thing that any startup business has to do is be really careful about where they focus and focus on driving early sales. If you're not getting early sales, you need to adapt and pivot. And we'll talk about that later on. But it's important that you don't overextend in order to get those test results. You don't want to put everything into your first three months to run out of cash at the end of the three months and not have had enough time to refine the products and the offering. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, if you've got a lot of money to spend, then I would imagine that the temptation is to do everything straight away. But I mean, is that necessarily going to be a good idea for a new business to be spending a huge budget straight away? Or would you sort of recommend they start off smaller and kind of work from there? Yeah, definitely start off smaller. If it's a proven business and a proven market and a proven product, for example, you're selling something that's evergreen like accounting, or you're selling a commodity, something like that, then certainly you can get away with spending a lot more straight up. But if you need some test results, if you need to have feedback from the market that this is something that people definitely want, then you've got to start in a really scalable way and only spend what you can afford to lose because the feedback that you get from the market might be that the product isn't quite right yet or the the message isn't quite matching or we're not hitting the right market. Yeah, and you could certainly find that out without huge expenditure if you, if you do it in the right kind of way. Definitely. And Facebook ads is a really good example of a, a platform that's really easy to test on. You get a load of really good data back without spending tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah, yeah, just sending a little, a small bit of traffic over to the website, see what kind of results you get, and then, yeah, do that a couple of times. You should have, have a pretty good product. What, what about kind of the opposite situation? Are there situations where you would recommend, you know, an investment, a backer or something like that? Yeah, there, well, there are definitely businesses where a backer is necessary if there's high capital expenditure required up front, if they need to spend a lot of money to develop a product, if it's a 
really complicated technology solution, things like that. So we've worked with them and we built sites for Sarah Willingham from Dragon's Den and, and she's investing in businesses that are mostly using money to scale. So that's an example of when, when investment can be really good. Generally, with a with a startup business that's launching online, we tend to be quite wary of investment because you're going to make mistakes. As a startup business, you're going to make mistakes and making mistakes with investor money is just going to multiply those mistakes. It's not going to prevent the mistakes from happening. So if it's something that you can test online with small amount of cash or or you can fund yourself, that's great. Then once you've got a good result, once you've got some profit, you can reinvest that and you can grow the business. We were working with a a client last year that was an e-commerce business and their sole goal in life was just to attract investment. Profit just wasn't even on their radar. And a conversation that we had a lot with them was if we focus our marketing instead on improving the conversion rate of the website and attracting more customers, you won't even need this investment because you'll be able to reinvest in building out the company yourself. You'll keep 100% of the equity. And this kind of chase for investment, I think, is a really trendy thing. Lots of startups from Silicon Valley want to do it. So then everyone assumes that if I'm a startup, I need to get investment. But I think on the whole, it's really not necessary unless you need that to build the initial product. That does seem to definitely be something that is one of sort of Exposure Ninja's kind of key goals is always looking at ROI and that kind of thing. So I guess I guess for you, that was sort of a difficult situation to work with, I suppose, if you're always focusing on, on ROI. Yeah, it can be pretty frustrating. I mean, obviously, lots of marketing campaigns have different goals, and their goal was just to increase awareness of the business and to create signals that investors would find appealing, such as high social media followings and that sort of thing. But our preference and our suggestion always for small businesses is focus on generating revenue and profit now and then reinvest that. That is, you know, since the dawn of business, that's been how businesses have grown. They've made some profit, they've reinvested that, they've made more profit with it. This kind of thing about just racing to grab a bunch of investment money and then hoping that somebody's going to grow the business for you. I think it's a little bit of a slightly backwards thing. I think it's it's currently in vogue, but I'm not sure if in five years it's it's really going to be as popular. So, so you mentioned you worked with Sarah Willingham. How how did that sort of come about? Then is there a good story there? Yeah, we well, it's a kind of lesson about how to how to scale. I guess we noticed that the the new Dragons Den lineup had been released, and we had a look at all the Dragon sites. Noticed that Sarah's was pretty rubbish to be honest it was definitely the worst dragon site so we got in contact with her and said hey Sarah you need a bit of a refresh we're we're happy to show you some stuff and see what you think and she liked the ideas we had and we ended up building the site and we've since done quite a lot of sites for her it's another example of how a business can leverage we'll look at celebrity and how you can use celebrity later on but authority figures and quote-unquote celebrities can be used by all sorts of businesses and you don't a lot of people will assume that these people are completely out of reach you never get contact with them and you need to be a massive company and they need to come to you often if you go to them with something that's really appealing and and you show them how you can help them they'll be happy to listen to you it's just about being persistent being willing to do stuff for them in order to help even if it doesn't make you any money knowing that that relationship is is going to be valuable down the line Uh, okay cool so yeah if we've got a bit of investment we've got an idea about kind of what the kind of product is what would be the the first step that you would recommend to either launch or, or grow a new business and what is the first part of that process for you then So whether you've got investment or not, the first thing you need to do is identify your perfect customer. You need to be able to do this to the extent that you can see their daily life. You you know exactly 
what they're going to be thinking, what their thoughts, what their concerns are. And you can see how your business, so your product or your service fits in with that. There's a really good book by a guy called Dan Kennedy called The Ultimate Sales Letter, which is designed for people who are writing old school, long copy sales letters, but is equally useful for the internet. And and it's just about understanding and, and really getting inside your customer's head. So some people will call this like developing your customer avatar or developing your PIC. Fundamentally understanding exactly who it is that you're going to be selling to is so important. If you don't know who you're targeting, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to magically appear in front of some audience that is really, really keen to buy. That's certainly something which I've already noticed over the few months that I've been with Exposure Ninja is that a lot of new businesses are not very clear at all what their target audience is, what their target audience should be. I mean, if we if we directly ask people, what is your target audience? A lot of people will say something like, you know, anyone that's interested in buying my product, <laughs> yeah. any, anybody who's who wants to buy it, basically. Like, is that ever a good idea to be that general? I mean, d- does that ever work? Or do you think that, you know, if, if somebody's kind of thinking along those lines, they're just not going to get anywhere? Yeah, I, I don't think if they're thinking along those lines, then they, they typically haven't understood the question. There are some businesses that pretty much everyone is their customer. For example, Amazon. So if you ask the head of Amazon, like, who is your target audience, then he's going to have a a broader answer than most businesses. But actually, if we drill down into what's made Amazon successful and how they've grown, they haven't grown by being everything to everyone. They've grown by being very specific things to lots and lots of different niche audiences. Well, even even Amazon started off as as a bookstore and then branched out, didn't they? So exactly, exactly. On the kind of small business thing, you lo- uh, I was talking to a, doing a review for for an implants dentist this week, and the the question of target audience came up, and the answer was, well, our target audience is anybody who's thirty to sixty five plus. We know, having done some work, and and your Facebook ad work has has been really useful here. We know that that's not that's not a, a tight enough audience for, in, in this case, dental implants. We know that that 30 to 65 plus, that is too massive an age range. And actually, I think, was it 50 to 65 or? What? Yeah, 50 plus worked out as the kind of audience. I mean, I guess I guess that sort of brings me on to another point. I mean, realistically, do you, do you think that, you know, a target audience should be informed by data or should be a little bit of a gut feeling or, or where is you kind of stand on that because for us obviously we were looking at that audience and we realized based on the data that anybody younger than 50 just was not engaging with ads for for dental implants but um would you always kind of recommend looking at data or, or do you think that you can get a good idea about that without yeah d- data is amazing if you've got it people don't always have the data to hand so with the with the implants example so what we did is we ran facebook ads to arrange lots of different people so a very broad campaign wasn't it and then looking at what sort of audience is responding best and that enabled us to strip out the vast majority of the ads because we identified that there was this target age group which was performing so much better than everybody else so when the the dental guy this week said my audience is 30 to 65 plus to me that's either he hasn't studied data or he hasn't been in business long enough to see who's walking in through the door so there's a few different ways of identifying your target audience obviously if you can run some facebook ads that's amazing because it will give you not only audience age but kind of demographic data gender data interest data where these guys are based you know so that can be a really good way to to get some data 
if you're not using Facebook ads or you're in the really early stages, then looking at existing brands in the market, seeing what sort of what sort of audiences they have. This can be anything from who what, what sort of demographics they're showing on the website. So going back to this dental implants guy on the website, it was just pictures of people in their 30s, you know, young, attractive girls with perfect teeth, the family by the beach. It's totally not that audience, is it? The the audience is the older guys and girls who are looking to replace gaps in, in their smile. So it's it's just knowing this target audience means that you can make sure the message is targeted to them, both the text messages and also the image messages. So you can look at competitors and the people who are doing well in, in your industry and see who are they targeting? What sort of people are engaging with them on social media? And then that's a, a good place to start. If you've got an existing brick and mortar business, obviously you can talk to the people coming in through the door and you should have a, a good idea about demographics and interests based on that. So so one thing that, yeah, obviously came from that campaign was we started with quite a broad audience and then we narrowed that audience down in stages. So we, we went from a 40 age range to a 65 and then we, we narrowed that down to 55 plus. Would you, would you say that it's always the case that you should start with a, a very broad audience and narrow down? Or do you think there's any situations where you can start with that narrower audience? What we didn't do is we didn't target 18 to 25s, right? Depending on how much you know about your audience already, if you can do some of that filtering beforehand, then that's going to save you a lot of click budget. Try and target as much as you possibly can. If you get a good response, then you know that you've, you've found it. If you don't get the response that you want, then you might have to broaden out a bit, but don't target to completely everyone straight away. Uh, you need to know at least which corner to be looking in. So I guess the, the two-stage process then for building that target audience would be start with your best idea of what you think, and then as soon as you've got some data, maybe you need to rethink it at that point, and then that's going to get you from a, a, a good audience down to a really great audience. I think that's kind of the process I would recommend. Perfect, yeah. So so if we've got a target audience, then what should we be doing after we've got that target audience? What would be the next step in the process of launching this new business? Okay, so the next step is to figure out what makes us different. So your USP or differentiator. If you can't explain why somebody should buy from you rather than somebody else, they won't be able to either. This is particularly important online because you might have an e-commerce business and you might be selling something that Amazon sells. If you don't have a really clear reason why somebody should buy from you rather than Amazon, then that's not good news because the chances are they already have an account on Amazon. They know that they're going to get free delivery. It's going to be quick. There's a lot of trust there already. So online, when you're imagining a page full of search results and on each of those descriptions you've got a chance to to show people why they need to be buying from you why they need to be clicking on your website so figuring out this usp is really important yeah yeah i mean a lot of customers definitely they might be look interested in a product and then once they know what the product they want is then they may actually end up then searching for the product again on amazon to try and find it cheaper so this kind of usp is your only real chance to be to be selling to those people in a way Exactly. And it is possible to compete against Amazon. You, you can do it. Amazon is good at one thing. It's good at lowest prices on something that somebody knows they need. If people are doing a direct comparison between you and Amazon, then that's not good news. But maybe someone's earlier on in the, in the buying process, they don't really know what they need. If you can offer them information or consultation, or you can offer them good information about how to find the right thing for them, 
that's a way that you can stop them from even going onto Amazon in the first place. You can keep their entire research and buying process on your website. Yeah, so a free consultation, that kind of thing, is definitely a really big USP that, that's worked well for a lot of clients that I can think of with Exposure Ninja. Uh, can you think of any other sort of good good USPs, any kind of pretty decent USPs that are going to work well quite often? Yeah, so USPs offer, if you can give something away free on the front end, like our own free website marketing review, or if you're a service business, then free consultation. Th- those sort of things, are they always work. And they're something that the larger companies just won't do. USPs tend to come in four kind of categories price, service, quality, or celebrity and authority. So I think the important thing is whenever you've got a USP, you've you've got to be specific. Standard yellow pages ad is lowest prices, best quality, right? It's it's just completely meaningless because anybody can say that. So if you're gonna compete on price, for example, do you offer a price match guarantee? Do you offer to beat people's prices? Free delivery is a compelling USP for some markets online. So is that something that you can talk about? If you're talking about service and being better at service, again, we've got to find a tangible way of describing that. So best service is meaningless, but uh, live chat support 24-7, right? I understand what that is. Or if you're B2B, do I get my own dedicated account manager? Or are there free returns? You know, that that's a tangible thing about service. And then you've got quality. So is, are your products or is your service better quality than anybody else? Again, how do we make that something that people can easily measure and easily understand the value of? And then finally, celebrity. So a lot of USPs in competitive markets will be around celebrity and authority. So you see in the back of the Saturday papers, you see the adverts for the stair lifts and the insurance and double glazing. And they'll often use a celebrity or someone who's familiar with the target audience. And you'll notice that the picture of the celebrity in the ad is bigger than the product picture because they know that piggybacking that celebrity's credibility is more important than anything that they can say. They're essentially selling a stair lift, which is like many other stair lifts. But yeah, it seems to be in kind of industries where the the products are are very, very similar, like in like insurance. People don't really sort of know the difference between insurance from the major brands. Like it's essentially the same product, but that celebrity makes a huge difference. That's something that, that a lot of customers will pick up on, isn't it? Exactly. Insurance, the audience is pretty unqualified to be able to tell the difference between two comparable products. And there are going to be many businesses that are listening to this who have a product which their customers only ever buy once or their customers are buying with absolutely no experience. So in those situations, when people are trying to choose between two or three or 10 different options, and they have no idea how they should be choosing, adding a picture of a celebrity that they're familiar with immediately draws their attention to that option and gives them a sense of reassurance that I I don't want to make a mistake with this purchase. This particular choice is associated with this person. So therefore, this is the safest bet. Well, one one other thing I just wanted to mention on, on the price thing, I did read a report recently saying that free delivery as a kind of selling point actually performs well, even when you, you raise the cost of the product, even if you actually raise the price of your product by the cost of that delivery and offer the free delivery, it can actually still get you more sales doing it that way than, uh, than not offering that free delivery. So it's quite interesting to note that free delivery doesn't necessarily have to be about a value proposition necessarily. It's just a, a really awesome selling point in that respect. That's a really, is that a Royal Mail study? 
It was, I can't remember where I read it, to be honest. There, there was a Royal Mail study, I think a year or two ago, that, that said exactly that. It's a really good point, because I think what we might be seeing is people's expectations move because of Amazon Prime to where delivery should be free. Like paying for delivery feels like a waste of money. If that's the case, the free delivery is not so much a selling point as the paid delivery is like a conversion blocker, isn't it? It's like, if I see that I have to pay for delivery, then oh, it feels like I'm wasting my money. Whereas if I pay slightly more for the product, well, then I might be getting a better product or you know, there's a there's a perceived benefit in a slightly more expensive product, which there just really isn't with free delivery. It just hurts because it feels like such a basic human right to have fast delivery. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, I was shopping on Beers of Europe, which is one of the largest stockists in the UK for alcohol. Um, and their delivery was £10. Yeah, I spent probably an hour on their website browsing because I was that interested. I, w- I was looking at all of these different beers, and then after it came to, to purchase it, ten pound delivery, and I just I left at, at that point <laughs> of the process after having spent an hour. So you can tell I'm a qualified customer, but I didn't buy anything from them, and that's that's the kind of conversion blocking that that can that can have. So yeah, you know that th- they should be able to build that into their pricing, I- even if it's they can't afford to offer free delivery for purchases under 50 pounds or whatever. Look at e-commerce stats. And when we've got someone who is offering free delivery, say over 75 pounds, we're working with a, a golf clothing brand. And when they move the, the the free delivery point, so when they move it from say 45 to 75 pounds, they see their average order value move so in sync with where they the, where they put the free delivery band. It's crazy. People will spend more in order to get the free delivery. It's just, you know, that they will do anything to get a free delivery. It has to be free. <laughs> so, so that's some good USPs then. So we've got price, service, quality and celebrity or, or authority are the four good, strong USPs. What about bad USPs? Have you seen any businesses that, that are trying something different that just hasn't worked? Or? Yeah, the, the, well, the main mistake is to talk about something which is completely fundamental to every company in the market. Um, So they'll go for really ambient statements. Let's say that we're selling, oh, I've got a good example. So uh, we're working with a a company that sells baby clothing. So one of their competitors or somebody could run a USP that's like cute outfits for your baby, right? But that's something that's generic and is applicable to every single business in that market. So I think the main mistake is just to either not have one at all or to use something which there's nothing defining about it. it it's just a given, given that market. Well, I mean, it, as we're talking about insurance, I mean, so insurance companies could be selling their services on the on the basis of, you know, peace of mind. You don't have to worry because you're insured. That's not true of their company specifically. That's true of all insurance products, isn't it? So it doesn't it doesn't encourage me to sell, to, to buy one product versus another one. It just encourages me to get insurance. There is an angle on peace of mind with when you're selling insurance that is you want to go for an insurance company which is really trusted because you need to know it, that's how Hiscox sells right they say you know you want to go for for the most largest and established but but yeah you're totally right insurance companies have always struggled because basically people buy insurance on price and you've got people throwing around cuddly meerkat toys and stuff like that doing anything they possibly can to build in <laughs> some kind of tangible usp to something which is so commoditized now, now that i think about it i'm not I should, i'm not sure whether or not i should tell you so I, I bought my house insurance on the basis that it came with a robot toy 
Well, there you go. <laughs> that robot toy probably probably cost that company, I don't know, a, a quid to buy in bulk. Yeah. If that and that was the basis on which I made my three hundred pound purchase for house insurance. So it just goes to show it's it's not down to yeah. It, it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be a rational thing at all, does it? And I bet that the the ad agency that's marketing Hiscox is rubbishing all of these kind of gimmicky USPs. Whereas actually, I bet if you looked at it, then these things do make a significant bump. And it's quite interesting to see the evolution of how insurance has been advertised because those sort of gimmicks have only come in relatively recently haven't they and it started off with just purely the the kind of entertainment factor of the meerkats and then they started adding in some credibility as well to try and build a bit more authority and then they've started adding in toys too companies that size doing that sort of thing if they're testing it then it's working and they've built their entire business online so yeah well i mean it's not there's not just the meerkat now is there i mean you've got obviously churchill and the dog and you've got you can buy that that red line phone yeah, obviously I've got the, a robot with mine, so clearly it's working, otherwise you wouldn't see so many companies doing the same thing. Did you choose the robot because you prefer it to the phone? <laughs> it's, it was a robot. I mean, robots are cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So maybe the next insurance company should be branded purely on the most popular toy. They should have Pokemon insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah I would buy that. You've got an example, haven't you, of some, uh, some slightly strange usp yeah so i mean i was walking down the high street this was on on monday of this week and i saw a billboard on on the side of a bus stop advertising dairy milk buttons and they're advertising buttons on the basis that it it tastes like this feels in the picture is of a child that just seems to be molesting their mother and i'm not quite sure what the selling point to me is supposed to be there is it supposed to be that i have a child now i don't i don't know i mean maybe they're being a bit too specific with their demographic there but it was not at all at all encouraging to me to purchase that product yeah so the pitch from the ad agency has been we we want to associate dairy milk buttons with the feeling of connecting with a child right to to being friendly with our children unfortunately the brand has just taken the ad agency or they're taking their word and, and just run with it. Well, the ad agency is there to take a percentage of the total media spend. So the ad agency's goal and the brand's goals are completely different. The brand wants to sell stuff. The ad agency wants to sell as much advertising space as possible. So the last thing that Dairy Milk's ad agency is going to do is say, hey, let's run a, a direct response ad driving people to a Facebook page or a website because then it's going to be trackable and then they're going to find out that, do you know what, advertising chocolate on the side of a bus isn't necessarily the highest ROI thing that we could be doing. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a, an example of when brands don't quite get it right. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to me there's a huge difference to, between offline old school advertising and, and online and digital advertising in that Older companies are interested in in things like brand awareness, whereas you know companies like Exposure Ninja are a lot more interested in sales. What what kind of revenue are we going to get for this advertising spend? It's it's not just the difference between online and offline. It's it's a difference that's always existed between brand ads and direct response ads. Like direct response ads, you still you see them in the back of magazines, right? You see a magazine ad on one page for some brand, and it's just a picture of a car in the middle of a field. And then you see at the back of the magazine, you see an ad that says fill in this form to buy this thing or fill in this form to get this free guide or whatever. It's, there has been direct response advertising offline, I think online. 
a lot of brands are being forced to think in a direct response way because all of a sudden that their ads are trackable and they've never been trackable before. They're looking at things like clicks and conversions, whereas previously, you know, it's just awareness and, and very fluffy stuff. So far in this podcast today, we've covered how to identify your perfect customer target audience. We then moved on to USPs. Uh, we're going to take a short ad break. And then after the ad break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the role that your website plays and what should it do and how to get some traffic to the site. Interested in learning more about digital marketing, the Exposure Ninja way? Check out the Exposure Ninja blog at exposureninja.com forward slash blog to read about the latest strategies directly from the ninjas themselves. See behind the scenes of successful campaigns, learn what's really working out there on the front line and get the most effective strategies, tips and tricks that the Exposure Ninja team are developing as they work on hundreds of websites in different markets around the world. Whether you want to learn more about websites, SEO, pay-per-click, social media, Facebook advertising, marketing strategy, or anything else digital marketing, visit ExposureNinja.com forward slash blog and subscribe for updates today. We've had our target audience built. We've created a USP for our product. What should we be doing next? Okay, so if it's a business that is relying on the internet to generate custom, then it needs a decent website. By decent website, I don't mean you need to pay someone a huge amount of money to build your website. I just mean you need a website that does its job. There's a book, I don't know if you've read it, called Lean Startup by Eric Ries. The concept that Eric Ries talks about is something called a minimum viable product. That basically means that when you're testing something new or you're launching something, you create the most basic version of that thing that you need to do in order to test its viability. And a lot of startups and small businesses will look at this concept of a minimum viable product and they'll miss out the viable bit right, particularly with their website. So with their website, what they'll do, put something up that's super amateur, really, really basic, looks super trashy. They'll say, this is our minimum viable product. We're going to launch with this and we're going to test it and we're going to see what happens. So this kind of ties into, obviously, if you're testing out a new product, you don't want to be spending a, a huge budget on the product. But at the same time, you need to be spending enough of a budget to know that you've given it a good chance. Exactly. The minimum viable product still has to be viable. An example that Dan Kennedy uses, let's say that we're going to make Exposure Ninja horse racing, right? And we're going to start racing horses and we, we reckon that we're going to win the Grand National and stuff. So how do we build that up? Well, the first thing that we need is we need a jockey, right? So we're going to find a jockey. So we've got this guy that we think is pretty good. So we want to test him out before we give him a contract. We want to find out how good he is. So what we're going to do, we're going to saddle up this donkey. We're going to enter the donkey into the Grand National and we're going to give it to our jockey. And we're going to say to our jockey, if you can get this donkey to finish well in the Grand National, then we know that you're good. And then we'll give you a proper racehorse to try it out on. You know, the donkey's going to be left in the starting grid or he's going to be like eating the grass or whatever. It's the same with a website. They'll try and test with something that's just so basic and doesn't have so many of the fundamental principles there that it's never going to work. And then they get results that says the market doesn't like this or the market's not responding to it. They don't get the conversion rate that they're expecting. They're no better off than they were before they started because they don't know if it's the website, they don't know if it's the product, they don't know if it's the market, they know nothing. Yeah, so they haven't really learned if they've got a viable product at all because they never 
it never even had a viable product to start with kind of thing exactly it's so poorly presented it never would have sold even if it's what people want to tie it back a bit more sort of specifically to the the digital marketing obviously which is our expertise i mean a lot of new businesses that, that we review obviously build their first website themselves to see if their idea works before kind of getting in any outside marketing help is that something that you found is, is ever going to work obviously in like to think that you know they're going to have a they're going to do better if they've got a digital marketing firm behind them but um, do they always need it, I suppose, is the question. No, no, definitely not. And, and we've worked with clients who have built their own websites and done a really good job of it. An e-commerce site selling dash cameras is one of the biggest in the, in the UK. And the guy built the site himself and just taught himself how to do it. So it can definitely work out. So this is not like an, this is not an ad for digital marketing agencies or anything like that. This is just as long as it looks good, it doesn't matter who built it, really. You know, obviously there there are some key things that every site needs to have. It needs to be mobile friendly and people need to be able to do what they need to do and find what they need to find. As long as it has that stuff, it, it doesn't really matter who built it. So so how do you sort of make sure that somebody, if you're, if you're in this situation where you're thinking about doing this yourself, how do you get from the kind of situation of thinking about this minimum viable product and making sure that it, that it is viable? How do you kind of bridge that gap? Unfortunately, the only answer is that when you're running it, when you're testing it, you'll be seeing what's happening with the traffic on the site. So if you're driving qualified traffic to the site and it's not converting, provided that the that the business is sensible and the and the product is approximately something that people would be interested in, it's it's likely to be down to the website or, or something about the site which is turning people off. I think if you're trying to make the decision whether or not to have a go yourself. You, you can definitely have a go yourself, but give it, you know, give your website the proper respect that, that it needs. A lot of businesses who even, you know, they might have a physical store, they would never even dream of designing their own shop front. They never even dream of designing their own logo or their own uh, their own signage. But then they'll have a crack with their website. Well, it makes no sense because you're, you're essentially saying that you, your logo is more important than your entire online presence, which is misguided so if you're going to do it yourself definitely take it seriously learn about conversion learn about building and give it the proper kind of respect that that it needs i think one of the dangers of of things like wordpress is it can be so easy to make something that people think it's so easy to make something good i think the difference between something that is 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 usable and conversion optimized and something which just looks pretty is is significant it's definitely one thing that has changed in in the industry and in, in website building and, and digital marketing in general, isn't it? Over the last sort of decade or so, it's become a lot more affordable to do that kind of thing yourself. I mean, I remember when Photoshop was a sort of five hundred pound program when when Dreamweaver was a couple of hundred quid to to purchase that. Whereas whereas now, obviously, you can get started online, can't you, for pennies even to to build your first kind of site. So. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a lot more kind of affordable. It's a lot easier to, to start up as a new business, but obviously you need the kind of skills to sort of back that up. I mean, you know, how, how much of, of, uh, of what a digital marketing agency brings to the table would you say is kind of based on time saved, not having to, to learn those skills um, as opposed to skills that, you know, an average business owner just, just wouldn't be able to pick up? That's a really good question. I think as a startup, you've got to evaluate where your strengths and weaknesses lie and use other resources to fill in the gaps. There are things that you can be doing which are a really good use of your time and that you can do better than anybody else. For example, blogging, 
talking about product descriptions, writing about your product, creating content. That's the sort of stuff that often it's a really good use of your time and you're the you're one of the best place to do that. There's other stuff which is maybe not such a good use of your time. So for example, trying to figure out how to use Google AdWords. If you're competing in a market where all of your competitors are using professional agencies with really mature campaigns and they've managed to optimize the campaign so they're hardly paying anything per click and you go in completely unexperienced, stick on a massive budget and you're just blowing your campaign spend you know, left, right and center and not getting results. It, you know, that's, that's a poor use of your time. So DIY advertisers, for example, will go into Google AdWords and they'll come out with the, the opinion that AdWords doesn't work and is expensive. Well, that's just because they haven't got the experience there. So that's something where they should maybe pay for some experience, whereas there are other things, things that just require time or just require grunt work that might be the sort of stuff that, that you want to focus on as a startup because time is, is what you have in abundance. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about getting creating a minimum viable product and how we would go about doing that. Uh, so once you've obviously got a product created and you're pretty sort of happy with it, what would you recommend as the next step? So the next thing is to start driving traffic to this website that, that you've built. Generally, we'd say, drive some traffic with something that you can test and something that you can test quickly. And this is tester traffic. We're not expecting to get rich with this traffic. We're just looking to get either a yes or a no from our audience. So we spoke about Facebook ads. Facebook ads are a great way to test a website because we can track which audience segments are converting and turning into customers. And then we can refine our offering. You know, if, you, if you're getting a lot of traffic to the site, it's not turning into business, but it's sticking around for a while. Then we know that there's something about the site that needs to be tweaked. If we're getting people onto the site and they're immediately leaving, so you've got a high bounce rate, then we know that there's something about the site or about the offering that's really fundamentally turning them off. So test the site with some traffic at a low level. Only test with what you can afford to lose because the result of this test might be that we're not quite there yet with the products, we're not quite there yet with the website. And generally use something like PPC or Facebook, which has built-in conversion tracking and gives us some data back. So would you be recommending using Google Analytics for this to, to find out how the website is performing or...? Yeah, always use Google Analytics. Whatever traffic you're running, definitely use Google Analytics. You want to make sure that you've got conversion tracking set up. So what that means is if somebody's filling in a form or if somebody's buying something, once they submit that, they're going to a thank you page. And inside Google Analytics, you go admin and then you go goals and then you set up a conversion goal. So you're basically telling Google that every time somebody lands on this page, they've converted. That's really important data because that allows us to then look and say, okay, so we know that we drove 50 visitors this week through PPC and we know that we got three conversions from that. So that's a 6% conversion rate. We know what the average value of those visitors was. So, you know, we, we know that this is a good channel that we can afford to continue with. Facebook also has a, a conversion tracking function on it as well, which you can set up through the through the Facebook ad manager. In a very similar way, it'll allow us to see which channels and which different different kind of ad groups are, are converting. And as you know, you can then uh, you can tell Facebook to, hey, get me some more of these conversions. I suppose the next step would probably be getting ranking on Google, that kind of thing. Google ranking comes from SEO, search engine optimization. 
And and that's a much longer term traffic source. So again, a new business will often come in and say, hey, you know, how long till we get to the top of Google? Well, it depends on the market, depends on the keywords, but it's something that happens over a longer, a longer period of time. So whereas Google AdWords or Facebook ads, as soon as the ads go up, you're getting people onto the site with SEO, it takes longer. When you're starting a, a new business or you're launching something online, the first step with SEO is is keyword research. So we need to know which phrases we want to target, which phrases that we want to show up for. Really important thing here is to learn the language that your customers are using to find you. The the example that we often use is we're working with a, a company that did corporate massage. So they go into offices and they give the people massage and you know it's, it's seen as like an office perk. A, a business that they wanted to kind of get some more traffic from on Google, we said, what do you want to rank for? And they said, on-site massage, that's our that's our thing, on-site massage. That's the keyword that we want to rank for more than anything. That's our top thing. When we looked into it, we found actually that on-site massage is a phrase that is completely meaningless to, to the general population. This is an industry term. So there was a lot of search traffic around on-site massage, but looking into it, it was just the on-site massage companies researching each other. So taking a step back and actually talking to some real customers and saying, what would you look for if you were looking for a business like this? They say things like office massage or corporate massage. So understanding the language that your customers are actually using is a is an absolutely fundamental thing. Just talking to them and saying, hey, what would you look for if you were looking for this sort of thing? You can look through forums, you can see what sort of language people are using there. Often people are surprised by how basic the language is that their customers are using, particularly if it's a, if it's a purchase where you're selling to an uneducated public. And, and by that, I don't mean that they're you know generally stupid people. I mean that they don't know how to buy your thing, right? So if you're, you're selling like parts for a car or something to car garages, then they're going to know ex- exact part numbers. But if you're selling parts to the general public, they're going to use very, very different language for that. One thing that I find interesting is, is you know, should we should we be using those, those industry-specific terms on the website at all, or should we steer complete, completely clear of them? Um, if our customers aren't going to be searching for those phrases, is there still a place on the site to be, to be talking about those phrases or not, would you say? Yeah, so you don't want to steer clear of industry-specific phrases, Showing people an industry-specific term for something can be a shortcut to making them feel educated and giving them a kind of immediate sense of gratification. If I come onto your site looking for a really basic term, you know, you you teach me something about this market that I didn't know before, that can build a sense of of trust and credibility. So if your audience isn't using industry-specific terms um, or or technical phrases, then that doesn't mean that you shouldn't use them at all. But you should prioritize the phrases that that your audience is is using. Uh, We're going to take another short break then. When we come back after the break, we're going to just be looking at what to do on your site if people are not buying a product. As a thank you for checking out the Exposure Ninja podcast, you can claim a free review of your website and digital marketing at ExposureNinja.com forward slash review. Your review will include analysis of your competitors and a free personalized strategic plan for you. There's absolutely no catch. If you like your review, you can apply to become an Exposure Ninja client, although there is no obligation to do so. Here is what people are saying about their free reviews on Facebook. My review was excellent and much more detailed than anything I would expect for free. We'll definitely be using Exposure Ninja further. 
I have just finished watching my free marketing review and I'm really impressed by the time and care taken. My review was sent by video, which was extremely helpful, as I could clearly see what I needed to do. I'd highly recommend applying for a free marketing review. A fantastic video review, some terrific advice covering all aspects of our website. The generosity in terms of quality and quantity of advice is tremendous. I applied for this and a number of other reviews from other websites. The review that Laura, one of the ninjas put together for me, was incredibly comprehensive. The other companies gave me a PDF full of graphs and stats that didn't mean anything to me. Laura sent me a video she made talking me through things on my website and gave me detailed advice on how to improve the website. To get your free website and marketing review, head over to ExposureNinja.com forward slash review now. Okay, so we're back after the break and we're going to be looking at what to do in the situation where people are not buying on your website. So you've built what you hope is a minimum viable product, you've tried to get some traffic to it, and for whatever reason that hasn't worked, what should you be doing next to The first thing to note is that you cannot multiply zeros. So if you're getting people onto your site and they're not converting, they're not turning into customers, what you don't want to do is keep running those ads or worse still, scale up the ads. So if you've got a 0% conversion rate with 1,000 visitors, you're not going to have a 5% conversion rate with 10,000 visitors, right? So you've got to be willing to pivot and adapt and explore. So it might be that you want to try a slightly different angle with your messaging. It might be that you want to use slightly different pictures. If, you, if you're not sure that you've quite hit the right demographic, uh, you might, might want to more closely match the demographic that you're targeting with the pictures on the site. It might be that you want to try a different call to action. But you've got to be willing to experiment and you've got to be willing to try different stuff. I don't know if you know, but actually there's a really famous example of, of a company that, that pivoted. Wrigley's Chewing Gum, right? They originally started as a soap and baking powder company. And then they ran a promotion where they gave away free chewing gum with their baking powder and soap. And the chewing gum was so popular that they said, oh, do you know what? Screw this soap and baking powder stuff. Let's just sell the chewing gum. And now they're the biggest chewing gum company in the world. Huh, I did not know that. That is that's quite interesting. So, so I guess this kind of goes back to like we were saying earlier about looking at data and and get and and analytics and all that kind of stuff. Is that the kind of what you would be looking at if we haven't got any sales? Or yeah, def- definitely data is really important. Google Analytics will tell you if you've got a high bounce rate, if people are landing on a particular page and they're not buying, or if people are going into your checkout but they're not coming out on the other side. So, for example, if you're charging too much for delivery, what you'll notice is a lot of people putting stuff in their basket, a lot of people clicking to check out, seeing the delivery cost, and then leaving. So that can be an indication that hey, we might want to look into uh, we might want to look into that Royal Mail study and think about some free delivery. But there are other places that you can look to. So having live chat on the site can work well. If you're getting a lot of visitors, but they're not turning into customers, you can set a pop-up which just says, hey, is there anything that we can help you with? And you'll get people saying, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm looking to buy this, but I'm not sure if whatever. You know, I'm not sure if this is the right size for me. I'm not sure how to tell what color this will be in real life. I'm not sure who this is really selling for. And then you can feed that data back into product descriptions or the information that you're showing. You can also use a service like usertesting.com where people will visit your site and they'll talk through exactly what they're doing. These are not marketing experts. They're not website experts at all. They're just ordinary people. So 
that can be quite enlightening because you can see actually how dumb people appear when they're using a site. When we're building a site, we know our site inside out. We know our product. We know our service. So we get kind of jaded by that. Whereas when a new visitor comes onto the site, they can be a really, you know, really clever person. But the the thing that we say is pretend that your user is Homer Simpson or pretend that your user is your mum. What what we mean by that is that they're they're coming onto the site. They've got a million different tabs open. They've got so many different things going on in their head. You know, the baby's crying. The cat's just been sick. The, the house is burning down. They've got to try and figure out what to do on your website with all of that stuff going on. And they've never seen it before. So user testing can give some really interesting feedback and is a good way to kind of get some honest advice from people who don't know you really. One, one phrase that I've heard you use before is we should try and limit how often our customer has to think. Well, the, the previous thinking used to be that we had to give people everything on one page, right? They had to, they had to see everything that they needed. We couldn't take them to any other pages because every time we tried to take them somewhere else, they'd fall off because they're helpless and, and they can't make decisions. What it actually turns out is that as long as we make the decision completely mindless and easy, then people will happily click through a website. So with e-commerce, for example, when they land on a product page, is the add to cart or the buy now button, is that immediately visible above the fold? If it is, great. If they have to hunt for it, that's not so good. So WooCommerce WooCommerce themes on WordPress. Lots of people run an e-commerce site using WordPress, using WooCommerce. And some WooCommerce themes will bury the buy button below the description and they'll bury it further down the page. If you look at how Amazon lays out its product pages, why would you do anything differently? Because Amazon has split tested more than anybody else. Amazon has, to an extent, educated people on how to buy. So if Amazon puts its buy now button in the right hand on the right hand side immediately visible when you land on a product page let's do that right so let's remove requirement for our users to use any initiative at all let's make it completely brain dead obvious one thing that will often get asked is if uh, if a company is selling a product they don't know if it's the website or if it's the price which is turning people off or if it's something else like product description what you can do in this situation is just for half a day, just set the price super, super low. Don't make it so low that it's, you know, that it's unbelievable, that it seems like a scam. But say you're selling a t-shirt for £25, just put the price at £5 and see if you get any sales. If you're getting sales, then you know that it's about the price or, that, or there's something where we need to justify the value. If you're still not getting conversions there, then it indicates that there's something about the site itself, which is turning people off. So experiment with different calls to action, experiment with different value propositions. And and you've got to keep trying stuff until you get something that is getting a conversion rate that you're happy with. A-B testing in general is something that the audience may have heard about as as a good idea in terms of marketing. So there's kind of quite a lot of different areas that you can be A-B testing, isn't there? Yeah, there are millions of different areas. And it's generally A-B testing is an absolute nightmare because you have so many variables and because you need to test with so much traffic. While A-B testing in principle is such an amazing idea, for a lot of people, it's just simply not practical. So what you've got to do is just keep experimenting. A lot of people say don't use any, don't use multiple variables. If you're going to test a different price, then don't test a different picture. Don't test different colors or whatever. I just say test as much as you possibly can and just keep testing as much as you can until you get something that works. And then you can refine from there. What you don't want to be doing is if your site's not converting, 
well, oh, let's just try changing the buy now button from green to red to see if that makes a difference. If you're getting a zero, try some radical stuff. So again, I suppose that might be advice that we'll look at in a later podcast when from a more established business that's got a decent amount of traffic. So, okay, so we've, we've talked about how you should go about improving your website if we're not getting any sales. Uh, if we have got a few sales as a new business, what should we be doing uh, with, with that profit? Where should we be going next as a business? So as soon as you're getting a return on investment, then keep scaling and add in new marketing channels. So if you're getting some sales from, say, Facebook ads, then it's time to start experimenting with Google adverts, time to experiment with SEO, it's time to experiment with email marketing and and basically keep on adding in marketing channels as you have the budget to reinvest. It can be so tempting if you have one channel that's working really well to become completely reliant on that one channel. We see this a lot with, say, um, Facebook or with SEO. So in particular with SEO, there'll be a site that has been ranking well for years and years and years. Google makes an algorithm change. All of a sudden, that site loses its ranking because it had become so complacent and so reliant on that traffic from Google organically. When the traffic stops coming, they have no plan B. Uh, well, I mean, a good example of the opposite thing is I had a review which I did for a client recently who's bringing in leads using Facebook advertising, and, and that was the only method by which they were getting traffic to their website. And although I work in Facebook advertising, one of the main things which I said to them is they should start looking at SEO and getting their site ranking because, you know, if, if Facebook decided tomorrow to change some of their advertising policies, then, then the way that they're getting their traffic currently could become unviable overnight. So definitely it's something which, which I would say, you know, even though I work in Facebook advertising, I would not recommend all of your traffic coming from Facebook advertising. Totally. One is always the most dangerous number in marketing because it can so easily turn into a zero. We, we've had this a lot with our books because we get so many leads from the books that it can make us complacent. So we have to force ourselves to get other sources of traffic and other sources of leads as well. Because if if something happens to that one source of traffic that you have, your business can literally dry up overnight that we I work with a a really, really good group of people a a few years ago, trying to get their site, a a penalty reversed on their site, because they'd been hit by a penalty, they'd been purely reliant on, on Google organic traffic. And penguin happened they lost everything so they contacted us to try and help them reverse that in the end first time ever that we haven't been able to reverse a penalty and and they had to close the business they had to go and do other stuff and it was during the time of of plenty they should have been focusing on getting other sources of traffic even if one one particular source can be working so well that you can't really justify in your head going to look somewhere else but you've just got to do it I guess the other thing is, obviously, if you've got traffic from from one source and it's working okay for you, you don't know necessarily if, you know, maybe you're getting traffic from a different source for, for half the cost. It's worth experimenting to find out what is the, the spend that I need to make to get traffic from, from Facebook or, Ad, or AdWords or, or SEO or any, any of the other sources. Yeah, so just because you're making money from one channel doesn't mean you can be making more money from another channel. Yeah, I mean, if you can bring in twice as much traffic from two sources, then why not? Another common mistake will be, well, I'm, I know I'm getting Facebook ad traffic. I'm getting it at, say, £5 per, per acquisition or £5 per lead. I tried Google AdWords and it was £10 per lead. So I'm going to turn off Google AdWords. Or 
I'm getting loads of traffic now from SEO. So I'm just going to turn off my AdWords. I'm going to stop doing AdWords. It's a it's a bit of a mistake. Any channel that is profitable for you that's pos- generating positive ROI, keep it going because you need those channels running should anything happen to one or the other. And there's also an argument that says just because your SEO traffic might be essentially free, that doesn't mean you don't want to pay for traffic as well, because as long as it's profitable, you just want to maximize your traffic and you want to maximize your sales. So just because you're getting a better deal from from one channel, don't don't lose focus on the others. Yeah, well, I mean, one piece of advice that I've heard before is you should be maximizing your spend, you should be increasing your spend so long as the spend per conversion is is less than or equal to the profit that you're making on that sale. At any point at which it's below that profit, then why not increase it? You'll be making more profit. Exactly. And you're getting a customer which you can turn into a repeat customer because you've got an awesome back end and you can get referrals and testimonials from that person. And, you know, yeah, definitely. As long as you can buy customers at less than it's costing you to, to deliver the product to them, then yeah, you should be doing that all day with whichever channel is profitable for you. Fantastic. So yeah, we'll be scaling using profit in pretty much any channel that that we can get to work. Um, Yeah, so yeah, the advice there um, is pretty much to be scaling using your profit any point at which you can be getting more traffic and it's still cost effective to do so, then that's definitely what you should be doing. Um, So just to wrap up the podcast, um, so we've got a seven-step process that we've been following. The first thing that we want to be doing is identifying your perfect customer, creating a target audience for your product. Uh, Then the next thing is to be creating a unique selling point for the product. So we need to make sure that we're selling it in an interesting way that's going to differentiate us from our competitors. And after that, obviously, we're looking for that minimum viable product. So we're looking to to test an initial product and make sure that this is definitely something that's going to work out cost effective. The, the next stage, once we've built a website, we've got a minimum viable product. We need to be testing that with some traffic to make sure that we are correct. So our two suggested methods here would be uh, Google pay-per-click or Facebook advertising to get in a bit of traffic, get some data and find out uh, how, that, um, how your product performs in terms of an actual market. The next step is then we should be looking at something like SEO to be bringing in traffic using uh, Google. Um, SEO is a fantastic source of traffic, and once you've got this set up, then this is going to be really cementing a long-term success for the business. Step six, um, if we haven't got some sales, uh, then what we need to be looking at is why that is, and we've identified a few different ways in which you could do that, be that using data, be that be asking some people that are not, not associated with the business what they think about the business, doing some user testing, that kind of thing. Uh, And then the final piece of advice that we've got today is scale using your profit. So if the business is profitable, if you're making sales, then make sure that you're increasing the amount of traffic you're bringing in, trying out different marketing channels, and any channel which is giving you a positive ROI is a channel which you should be increasing the amount of ad spend in. Anything else you want to add, Tim? Uh, No, I think that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to head over to iTunes to subscribe and also leave us a review. That's really, really important. If you've enjoyed this and you want to hear more, then please leave a review. It helps us to improve the ranking of the podcast and we are all about ranking. Uh, Thank you, Lawrence, for joining me on the episode and look forward to talking to everyone soon.